Maybe it was coming back with the second giant plate from the buffet, and uh, you sit down, and, and everyone's kind of staring at you, and you say, do not judge. Or maybe it was uh, showing up to a public function in your pajamas. Um, I know some of you have done that before. I've seen you do that before. Or maybe you were like me this week, where I was uh, taking the kids to school, and we had to drop off a jacket that somebody had left here this past Sunday because they, they couldn't come because uh, they just had a baby. And so I was dropping it off at, at Justin and Becca's house, and and uh, he's sitting outside, and I open the door of the van, as, as I do to take the jacket up there, and comes blaring out of my van Christmas music. Just blaring. And immediately, without even, I mean, just subconsciously, I scream it to Justin. I say, Do not, don't judge me! Because I know how harsh the listening to Christmas music before Thanksgiving crowd can be. And my kids really like it. And it keeps me from having to watch the same movie in the van over and over again. So that's why we're listening to Christmas music. But I just instinctively, out of nowhere, just screamed, don't judge me. Because I had that moment where I thought, wow, something about my life is going to garner judgment. A decision, an idea that I'm doing, you're going to look at me and think less of me. And so it just sprang out. And I bet you, you've done that too. I bet you, you've been in a situation where all of a sudden you've became hyper aware of your surroundings and something that you were doing or you were wearing or you were thinking and you just either thought or even spoke it out to the world, do not judge. It's from the Bible. It comes from Matthew 7. And, and that's something that as you read through the book of James, which we're actually in right now, you hear a lot. James, some scholars say they think is almost a, a, a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount where this comes from. And, and we have spoken this reality of judgment out before. There's a prominent theologian by the name of Tupac Shakur, and he says, only God can judge me. And he's kind of right about that. Um, and that's a, yeah, amen. We got an amen for, for Tupac over here. Um, Right on. Uh, I'll do Biggie lyrics next week just to even it out. And uh, so, so in James 4, as we were reading earlier, I know as we come out of this beautiful, amazing uh, worship experience and talking about the grace of God, and then we hear James's words of, turn your joy into gloom. Uh, weep and mourn, and it's one of those eye-raising passages that you think, why in the world is this in there? And the end of it, he begins to start talking about judgment. Because over the last three weeks, we talked about our actions, we've talked about our words, we talked about our hearts, and how everything is really flowing out of our hearts, whether we like it or not. And, and this week, we move into that place in our heart because judgment, as we know, it, we were confronted with our own hearts when we understand our own places of judgment. Uh, Christians probably need to talk about judgment, wouldn't you think? Are we doing okay on that? No. 2006 Thursday, uh, survey of 16 to 29-year-olds found that one of the highest, if not the highest, common theme of their perception of Christianity. 87% held the view that Christians were judgmental. 87% thought that Christians were judgmental. That's 12 years ago. So I would venture to guess that those people have grown up a little older and the new people have come along and that number may have either stayed the same or gotten even bigger. I've experienced this firsthand in conversations with friends who, who did not grow up in church, who are not believers, and they've told me that the number one understanding they've had or perception they've had of Christians is just that they judge everybody else. 
besides themselves. Probably that's been your experience as well, has it not? You've probably encountered a judgmental Christian before. And so into this reality, which James is talking about in chapter 4, we're, we're talking horizontal reality. He's talked about our relationship with God. In these last few chapters, it's been about the way that we understand and interact with other people. And he's speaking into that when he's talking this. In verse 11, we're going to start there and look at this. He says, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to judge your neighbor? And everyone across the religious spectrum says, amen. Let's just say that all day. Who are you to judge your neighbor. You do not have the right to judge. Now, when we say do not judge, there is a dominant understanding of what this means in our culture, and it's basically this. You do you, right? You do you, honey boo boo. That's the way that we understand that. Don't judge me. My beliefs and my ideas are, are essentially the same as everyone else's ideas. There's a, a, a terminology for this is moral relativism. And moral relativism, I don't know if you know what that is, is the idea that there is no universal or absolute set of moral principles. There's nothing that is the overarching moral principle in our reality. In other words, every single person has the right to establish their own values and standards for their life. And if you and I, if we express that in any way, our views and our standards and our ideas are better than other people, then we're called or seen as judgmental. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Maybe you came in today with that mentality. I, I don't doubt it because even if you didn't come with that mentality, I guarantee you've been shaped by it because we are swimming in it. It is the predominant understanding. As long as I'm not hurting someone, then what's the problem? But, but using moral relativism as a reason not to judge people, it quickly falls apart. There's really not a lot of real moral relativists out there because if you look across the political or cultural spectrum, you come to the conclusion pretty quickly that all ideas are not equal, are they? So if we're looking at the people who are marching on Charlottesville and, and speaking out their white supremacy and their, their hatred and their racism, I'm of the opinion that that is not equally valid, right? I'm judging that that's not an equally valid idea. I push that away. Or maybe it's a religion that part of their practices, they, 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 they hurt the vulnerable, like the women and children and practice violence towards them. I'm of the opinion, I'm of the judgment that that is not an equally valid idea. And I don't want to think that that's, that's, that's equally valid. And so all of a sudden, all of our moral relativism kind of goes out the window because we all have to acknowledge in some form or fashion that there are some ideas that just aren't as equal and valid. Racism, I refuse to hold as an equal and valid idea, Right? We can't be moral relativists, and very, very few people, if they're honest, are. You see, do not judge 
does not mean do not discern. I'm going to say that again because that's hugely important. Do not judge does not mean do not discern. What the Bible is talk about when it talks about judgment is not discernment. And discernment is vitally important because that's a work that the Holy Spirit does in us. Sinclair Ferguson, he's a, a theologian and pastor. He defines discernment as, as the ability to make discriminating judgments, to distinguish between and recognize the moral implications of different situations and courses of actions. All of us should be in our discerning what is good and what is right and what is true. In the Bible, it calls discernment even a spiritual gift because some folks, it says that the Spirit has, has given them the ability to see through the fog of, of our reality, sometimes see unseen things and discern what is actually at work behind the scenes. But all of us All of us as followers of Jesus have this gift of discernment, this calling of discernment, of of recognizing what is good and right and true as the Spirit works in us. Everybody who is a follower of Jesus, we're called to practice that kind of discernment. Now, do we sometimes disagree on what we're discerning? Yes. Absolutely. There's disagreements on what we discern God is saying and doing, but that is not the issue we're talking about here. We may come to these types of conclusions, but if if judgment and discernment are two different things, what James is actually talking about is something different when he says, do not judge. The Greek word in the New Testament for judgment is is krino, which means more than just discern good and right. It means to condemn or punish as a result of your judgment. To judge isn't just to discern what is right, but to stand in superiority over those that you see is wrong. See, all of us are discerning what is good and right and true, and we may disagree on what we discern to be good and right and true, but the judgment that James is calling us to lay down is the one that says, my beliefs, my judgments, my discernment makes me better than you. That's what he's calling us to lay aside. See, judgment has less to do with your positions on things and more to do with your posture in those positions. And one of my favorite stories of this, it comes in Luke chapter 18. And Jesus is telling this story of two polar opposite people. He's talking about a Pharisee who is a religious leader of the day. They believed that that, uh, if everyone in Israel kept the law for one day, then the Messiah would return. And so they were very, very, very interested in you being good, moral, upright people And then he talks about a tax collector. A tax collector was someone who betrayed their people, who was working for the man, who was robbing people and extorting people and taking money away. They were the worst of the worst. And into those two polar opposite realities, Jesus tells this story. Listen to this. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy and unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. 
You see, the problem with this tax collector was not his position, was not his morality. Is anyone here pro-greed? I don't see any hands raised. Anyone pro-adultery? No, no hands are raising here. That's not happening. Is, is everyone pro-tithing? Yes, and, and fasting. Those are good things. Awesome things. Tax collecting, extorting people. Bad. I don't want to be that. You don't want to be greedy. You don't want to be an adulterer. None of us do. You see, this Pharisee morally is in the right place. We would agree with him morally. That's not the problem. So the story continues, it says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one in right standing with God, justified before God in this story, this is shocking, is not the one who has all of his moral ducks in a row. The one that walks away justified before God is the one who has the right posture, the posture of humility. And we have to be very careful in reading this story because I know if you're like me, When you hear this, you think of Pharisees and you start thinking about modern day Pharisees. You start thinking about people that you know to be judgmental. I start thinking about Christians in our culture that give our faith a very bad name. Anyone else think about that when you're hearing this story? You think, gosh, I just, oh, I thank God that I'm not like those fair, and then I did it. I became them. I became the very thing that I am railing against. That is so easy. You see, this sermon could have been very easily a rah-rah, aren't you sick of those Christians out there judging people? Aren't you glad that we're not like them? It could very easily be that. You'd be quoting on Facebook, everyone would love it. But that allows us to, to ignore our own hearts And the fact that there are people, if we're really honest, that we don't just disagree with, but there are people that our discernment in this world, we use that to stand over them. There's plenty of verses in the Bible about exercising wisdom and discernment and even standing firm in the truth and standing for what we believe in. But but standing firm in truth never means standing over other people. Those are two opposite things. This story and this passage we see in James makes it abundantly clear. You go through the scriptures and you see you have no right at any point as a follower of Jesus to stand over anyone because of what you believe and discern in your life. Look at this in Ephesians 2 verse 3. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or or conceit, but in, in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Wow. Then again in Romans 12, 3, it says, For that by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly 
Other versions say with sober judgment, as as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. How you view yourself in relation to other people is a direct representation of how you view yourself in relation to God. If you're standing over other people with your beliefs, by proxy, you are standing over God. It's amazing. This is how Jesus puts it in Matthew 7 as he continues the do not judge passage. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Again, Romans 2.1. You just keep going with these verses. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Whew. It can't get much clearer than that. And knowing this, knowing how we should relate to other people, Knowing that the Bible calls us to a place of recognizing and acknowledging our own brokenness long before we are acknowledging and pointing out the brokenness in other people can only lead us to a place of humility. And then you hear this passage from James 4 and wonder why it's, it seems like it's calling you to a place on your knees to be humble before God. It says, God resists the proud, but it gives grace To the humble, it's because James knows that when we understand the spiritual reality of our horizontal relationships, our relationships with other people, it is directly connected to the way we understand God. And it brings us, friends, to the heart of the gospel itself. Because if you're like me, you grew up with an understanding of Christianity that went something like this. Everyone is bad, right? And then, because everyone is bad, what Jesus comes, and he, does, he comes and he forgives our sins by dying for us on the cross to make us what? Good. Jesus died to make us good. And so we come to faith in Jesus because we're good now. But guess what? Everyone else is still bad. And that's the framework we understand for our Christian faith. Good people and bad people. And that's just not the gospel. Jesus didn't die to make us good. See, the gospel is, is the antithetical to that. It's, it's the opposite. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. There's a big difference, a massive difference in this. This is our salvation. A corpse, a dead person, does not brag about the, the fact that it was raised from the dead because it had no part in it. There was a power outside of itself. God raises the dead. He raises the dead in us. He doesn't move us from bad morality to good morality, even though the way that we live our lives change when God brings us to life and continues to bring resurrection and restoration He takes us to a place where understanding the great grace that he has given us humbles us because we recognize 
God didn't bring us from that bad place to the good place. He brought us from death to life. And the only thing that the gospel can produce in us, if that's true, is humility. A proud Christian is an oxymoron. A proud Christian is an oxymoron because if you truly understand what Jesus has done for you, there is nothing more humbling than that. I don't know about you, but but my awareness of my own heart and my need for the grace of God has grown the longer I've been a Christian. Not gotten smaller. I see more of my need for his grace. I see more of my need for his redemption in my life. It makes me come alive. And you might think that may be a bad thing if you just constantly think, man, I see more of my need for God and my own brokenness, but that's not a bad thing. And here's why. This is hugely important. When we talk about our sinfulness, sinfulness is not worthlessness. Here's what I mean by that. Sinfulness is our reality. Yes, we are born into sin, but there is nothing in the scriptures that says that your sinfulness equals your worthlessness. In fact, the opposite is true because you see the utter worth of your life and that the God of the universe would come and give his life for you. Your worth has never left you, even in your sin. And that's why we can understand and even boast in our weakness, in our own brokenness, because we recognize and we understand that it's not our identity. Our sinfulness has not taken away our worth. Our humility is not our humiliation. And to understand this comes from the fact that we know that in God's judgment of our sin, there is now no condemnation. Ooh, this is huge, friends. See, in Matthew 25, it says that Jesus one day will come and judge the world. Sounds scary, right? <laughs> but then John 3, 17 says this, For God did not send his Son to the world, this is Jesus speaking, to condemn the world, but to save it through him. The judge is coming, but the judge is not bringing condemnation. It's why Romans 1, 8, 1 and 2 says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Notice it's the law of spirit of life has set you free from death, not the law of the spirit of goodness has set you free from badness. You have been raised to life, have been resurrected. And so I'm glad that Jesus, the judge, is coming to bring judgment upon the world because I know that this righteous judge is not bringing condemnation to me. That's good news. Oh, Don't you want the righteous judge to come and to judge the brokenness and racism and xenophobia and and the the hatred that we have? I want him to come and bring justice and bring an end to that, don't you? I want him to come and bring an end to sin and brokenness in this world. And I can celebrate that not in fear, but in love because I know that perfect love has cast out fear because he is not coming in condemnation. He's coming to conquer death in me and around me. It's why we believe that Jesus is restoring people who restore the world. And it's why that that mission statement for us goes out because we go out into places of brokenness, into our own brokenness and bring it with us because in our restoration and what God is doing in us 
He is bringing restoration into this world. And we should be in that process, the most humble, grateful people recognizing what God has done for us. It's why James reminds us in chapter 2 when he says this. He says, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen? Mercy triumphs over judgment. How does mercy triumph over judgment? You see, the judge himself, Jesus, that will come one day to judge the world is the one who took the penalty of our sin himself on the cross. The judgment was taken upon by the judge himself. Any condemnation that came because of our sin was taken on himself. And now his mercy has triumphed over the judgment of our sin and he has given us life. And that is good news. To the people who have received mercy, when we think about our relationships with one another, we will give mercy. We should be the most merciful people in the universe because of what we have received from our God. You know, in Romans 2, it talks about God bringing repentance. You know how it says God brings repentance? It says God's kindness leads to repentance. And if it's God's kindness that leads to our repentance, why would we ever think being jerks to people is going to bring repentance? Is it not going to be our overwhelming kindness to the world around us as we recognize our own brokenness and humility say, I know I'm with you. I don't stand over you. We may disagree, but let me tell you, I'm with you and I want you to experience the same mercy and the same kindness that I have. Let me introduce you to this Jesus because he's fixing me, he's restoring me right now, and I want you to experience the same restoration in your life. Maybe today you have lived in a bad person and good person framework of Christianity, and today is the day you leave that behind. And you come and recognize in humility that you were dead and out of grace. Jesus brought you to life. And you put your faith in him even as a righteous judge because he promises that his condemnation is not coming on you. It's gone. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are free because of the mercy of God. So today we need to do a little bit of work both in our vertical relationship with God and we need to do some work in our hearts with our horizontal relationship with God. I, I think what we need to do today as we respond is, is first of all recognize do you understand the depths of your, the mercy that has been expressed to you in Jesus Christ? Do you know that? Have you experienced that? If you've never experienced that before, if you've never come to faith in Him today, let today be the day that you do that. You take that first step of many steps in your relationship with Jesus. Or maybe for some of us who have been a part of our faith for a while now, you need to confess to God that you have stood over and above people, whether that be Republicans or Democrats or evangelicals or, or whoever it may be, that you stood over and above them and you need to come down to the foot of the cross and say, Lord, forgive me for my arrogance 
Shape me by your mercy. Give me your mercy and your grace so I can give that same mercy and grace to others. Whatever that may be, let's do business with God as we respond in this time together. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your mercy and your grace to us. I thank you that we can bear our hearts in all the brokenness and sin. We can even even express that to you without fear because you're not a condemning God. You came to save us. So as we receive these elements today in communion, as we pray, as we listen, as we sing in this time of response, I ask you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us. Bring us to a place of conviction in our own heart about the way that we see you and about about the way that we see other image bearers in this world. Thank you for your word. Thank you that James, even though he is He is harsh sometimes. He is challenging. These hard words are softening our hearts to be more like you, Jesus. Thank you for that. So we respond to you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Community teams are.